Revelation 18. Now, what we've seen, where we are, let me bring you up to speed. Seven-year tribulation period. Judgments that come down upon the planet. Last call to Israel. There's three sets of judgments. The purposes of the judgments are to bring man to repentance. That God's speaking, you better listen up. Well, how do we know God is speaking? Take a look at these supernatural events that usually don't happen. We saw that with Pharaoh and Moses and Aaron causing or calling Pharaoh to let God's people go. It's also to judge wickedness, which is what we're going to see at the end of it. And it's to purge the kingdom for the coming king. You've got a pure, holy, perfect Jesus Christ that's going to come take the kingdom. As we saw that, Saleh and the Hebrew, Salah, Shiloh, to him who comes. When he comes to rule the earth with an iron scepter, the scepter will not depart from his feet. That's what we're talking about. So to judge man for his wickedness, call man to repentance, and to purge the earth for the coming king. We saw seal judgments, trumpet judgments, where the angels come out and blow their trumpets, and then we saw the final judgments, the bowls being poured out upon the planet. In chapter 17, John sees a vision of a beast and a woman riding the beast. And we saw that that was symbolic of the political system, the united political system of the day, which is what we're heading towards. And we're going to have a one-world economy, one-world governmental system, one-world military. And you've got a woman that is symbolic of a one-world religious system. She's referred to here as a prostitute or a harlot. We see the woman riding the beast, which means you've got church and state united. You've got a one-world governmental system, one-world economic system, one-world religious system, and it's united. And the world thinks that this is a great thing that it's going to bring about world peace. But we know that that's a deception. And John is told who these people are. Now, we see later on in the vision, the beast, which is symbolic of the political system of the day, attacks the religious system and kills her, wipes her out. I believe that's mid-tribulation. I believe that's in the middle of the seven-year period. In chapter 18, what we are going to see is the destruction of the political system. They're both called Babylon. In chapter 17, if you look at the name of the woman, it's on her forehead. Verse 5, mystery, Babylon. I'm in chapter 17, verse 5. Mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of prostitutes, and the abominations of the earth. That's the name of the woman. But then in chapter 18, if you look at it, in verse 2, this angel that comes and pronounces judgment, this is what he says. With a mighty voice he shouted, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the Great. She has become a home of demons and a haunt for every evil spirit. Now, it's two different things. We know this because in verse 1 it says, Another angel comes. In chapter 17, one of the seven angels comes and tells John about the vision. Here we've got a different angel from the one in chapter 17, but it's referring to Babylon. So in chapter 17, you see the destruction of the united religious system, a false religious system. In chapter 18, what you're going to see is the fall of the political system. And then the kingdom gets set up in chapter 19. This is the end. This is the culmination of the book of Revelation. 
Babylon here, if you remember, is representative in the religious system of all the false religions because it goes back to Genesis chapter 10, Nimrod, who started Babylon, or the Tower of Babel. All the false religious systems from the Tower of Babel forward. And here, it's also going to represent the false political system, that it's all going to be destroyed. Basically, what you've got is the word Babylon, is anything that goes against God in his plan. You can label it all underneath it. Okay? Now, to illustrate that, let me take you to Zechariah and show you exactly what this Babylon that has fallen here is. Now, we know that it's, we'll go to uh, Zechariah chapter 5. Go to Matthew, take a left to Malachi. And then another left to Zechariah. Zechariah chapter 5, verse 5. Now here's the problem with the book of Revelation. We don't know a lot of times the symbolisms that are mentioned and how we can cross them over to today and their implications. Meaning what you've got here is a destruction of the entire governmental system. It's called Babylon. What you're going to see is the merchant ship and all the bounty of the world destroyed, and you're going to have kings that are going to look on, and they're going to mourn. Earlier on in the book, we saw a quarter of the earth destroyed. We saw a quarter of the population of the earth taken out. And the problem is, who and what regions of the earth are going to be taken out? Now, of course, if you're interpreting the Bible in America, who do you think it's going to be? Most of the scholars, you see the American commentators that that comment on the book of Revelation, they don't think it's America that's going to be destroyed. But if you go over to Europe and you, you take some of the European commentators and see what they say, well, they don't think, of course, it's them. Nobody wants to step up to the plate and say, well, it's going to be us that's going to be destroyed. But we see, the fact is, in the book of Revelation, a quarter of the population and the earth is destroyed. Who is it? Well, the Bible will give you hints. Uh, in Zechariah, Ezekiel, Daniel, Russia is mentioned in the great battle. They come down from the north. China is mentioned. They come from the east. Africa and Egypt are mentioned. They come up from the south. But the only people that aren't mentioned is, uh, what are we, North America, Canada, United States? We're not mentioned. Now, of course, the United States commentators is that we just kind of blend in to the European Union. We're just part of them. That's why we're not mentioned. But my personal opinion is I think that we are the most prosperous country in the world, basically. We are the leaders. We set the pace. We set the cadence. And I think God's going to take us out as a warning to the other nations. One commentator picks up on these verses, 5 through 11 of Zechariah chapter 5. And what he's going to say about Babylon is that you've got Geneva, you've got the United States, you've got the wickedness of the world all wrapped up in this name, Babylon. In this vision that Zechariah gets in its future events, he's going to have a vision of a woman that's in a basket. And these storks take this basket with a lead cover over it and take this basket and fly it off and dump it someplace. Now let's take a look at it and I'll interpret the signs for you. Watch this. Verse 5, Zechariah 5, verse 5. 
And the angel who was speaking to me came forward and said to me, Look up and see what this is that is appearing. And I asked, What is it? And he replied, It is a measuring basket. And he added, This is the iniquity of the people throughout the land. A basket, an ephah basket, is what you put food in, grain, and so forth. It's symbolic of commerce. And he's saying, Here you've got this measuring basket a symbol of commerce, and the iniquity of the people throughout the land. Now watch what's going to be symbolic of the iniquity of the people throughout the land. It says, Then the cover of lead was raised, and there in the basket sat a woman. And he said, This is wickedness. And he pushed her back into the basket and pushed the lead cover down over its mouth. Now a lot of times in the Bible you have evil depicted as a woman. The reason that is is not because women have a have a higher propensity to be evil than men. Even though, you know, people say, well, look, Eve was the one that was, you know, tempted in the, uh, in the garden. Yeah, but she was deceived. Paul says that Adam sinned with his eyeballs wide open. All right? The reason you've got woman is depicted as evil in this prophecy and then also in the vision that John got and revelation of the church, the evil church of the day, being depicted as a harlot, a woman, is because where does life come from on this planet for the most part? Women, they give birth. So the idea is, is you've got the birth, the genesis of all evil. That's the idea. It has nothing to do with women being more evil than men. We're both equally evil. But that's the idea. What you've got is commerce, he's saying, and you've got a woman, the genesis of evil, the totality of evil in this basket, but there's a lead cover over it. Who's putting a lead cover over it? God. Now, we see God controls evil. He controls Satan. He allows Satan to, to do what he does, but he puts a lid on him. We saw that in Job. You can go do this to Job, but you can't do this. He limits him. Now, verse 9 says, Then I looked up, and there before me were two women with the wind in their wings, and they had wings like those of a stork, and they lifted up the basket between heaven and earth. Uh, women also represent gay love with a woman and a child and so you've got God lovingly taking this commerce of evil this totality of evil that he has covered and they're lifting it up between heaven and earth and they're going to take it somewhere and they said where are the king or where are they taking the basket verse 10 I asked the angel who was speaking to me and he replied to the country of Babylonia see that to build a house for it and when it is ready the basket will be set there in its place Go back to Revelation. That's what you see here. The basket has been set in its place. The author is saying that you've got the totality of all the world evil that God is controlling. He's in control. That's one of the comforting things about the Bible, especially reading through Revelation. That it's just not all out of hand and mayhem. God has divinely purposed and predestined all things. And he controls and sustains all things by the power of his word. And in chapter 18, according to that vision, you've got all the evil capitals, all the evil powers that are symbolized in this city, and it's put in its place. And what he's going to do is he's going to go through it, and he's going to tell you exactly what happens. Now, uh, Babylon at this time was a great city. It's one of the seven wonders of the world, the Hanging Gardens. Let me read to you 
what Clarence Larkin says about Babylon. Because, see, when you read this, it would hit home. Because you're looking at this city. It was literally, virtually everybody believed, impregnable. It had 87 six-foot walls that were 100 feet high. You could ride six abreast in chariots across the top of it. It had 250 towers. It was a 15 by 15 cube, so it was 60 miles all the way around the thing. It had a river that ran through the middle of it, the Euphrates River, and they virtually felt that they were uh, impregnable. And if you remember Belshazzar, who was partying away one night because they felt, you know, that nobody could ever come and take them out. The Medo-Persians shut up the water upstream and just walked in through the water gate, didn't disturb one brick. And while Belshazzar was sitting there partying, the hand of God came up and wrote on the wall, many, many tekel you parson, meaning you've been weighed in the balance and you've come up short. You're going, down. That's what he said. And the Medo-Persians came in, took him out. But listen to what he says about this great city. He says it started out, Genesis chapter 10, with Nimrod, and it reached its greatest glory in the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, B.C. 604 to 562, as described by Herodotus. It was an exact square of 15 miles on each side, 60 miles around, surrounded by a brick wall, 87 feet thick, 350 feet high, or though probably he says that was a mistake, it was 100 feet being the near height. On the wall, there were 250 towers. On top of the wall was wide enough to allow six chairs to drive abreast. Outside this wall was a vast ditch surrounding the city, kept filled with water from the river Euphrates. And inside the wall, and not far from it, was another wall, not much in inferior but narrower extending around the city 25 magnificent avenues 150 feet wide ran across the city from north to south and the same number crossed them at right uh, at right angles from east to west making 676 great squares each nearly three-fifths of a mile on a side and the city was divided into two equal parts by the river Euphrates that flowed diagonally through it whose banks within the city were walled up and pierced with brazen gates with steps leading down to the river. At the ends of the main avenues on each side of the city were gates whose leaves were of brass and that shone as they were opened or closed in the rising or setting sun like leaves of flame. The phrase within the city was spanned by a bridge at each end of which was a palace, and these palaces were connected by a subterranean passageway or tube underneath the bed of the river in which at different points were located sumptuous banqueting rooms constructed entirely of brass. And then he goes on to say that uh, there were hanging gardens uh, that were 400 feet square. They raised in a terrace, one above the other, to the height of 350 and were reached by stairways 10 feet high. And he says the whole uh, hanging gardens, if you looked at them from the distance, looked like a forest-covered mountain one of the seven wonders of the world that uh, he had created them for his queen basically and so it goes on this would be a great picture to these people of this day to show that here this Babylon this great city one of the seven wonders of the world in just a short time is destroyed let's read through the text watch this 18.1 he says after this I saw another angel after what well after chapter 17 when we see the religious system taken out after the religious system taken out he says he sees another angel coming down from heaven and he had great authority and the earth was illuminated by his splendor with a mighty voice 
two Sabbaths. Now, it's great that it says that the earth was illuminated by a splendor because in chapter 16, we have the final plagues that come down. Remember, the kingdom of the throne of the beast with the fifth bowl in chapter uh, 16, verse 10, plunged his kingdom into darkness. Here, all of a sudden, in this darkness, you see this bright light, this angel coming down and pronounces judgment. Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a home for demons and a haunt for every evil spirit, a haunt for every unclean and detestable bird. For all the nations have drunk the maddening wine of her adulteries. The kings of the earth committed adultery with her, and the merchants of the earth grew rich from her excessive luxuries. So God's going to deal with evil. You're going to see the kings of the earth, the merchants of the earth, all those who followed Satan are going to be fallen. They're going to be taken out. Verse 4, he says, Then I heard another voice from heaven say, Come out of her, my people, so that you will not share in her sins, so that you will not receive any of her plagues. Now, where else do we see in the Old Testament where God gives a call for those to come out from a city that he's about to destroy? Sodom and Gomorrah, remember? Let's go take Lot out. Also, before the flood with Noah. I'm going to destroy the earth, but all those who are in the ark are going to be saved. There's a final appeal from this angel to those who are on the planet, come out because it's going to be destroyed. Verse 5, it says, For her sins are piled up to heaven, and God has remembered her crimes. doesn't mean that God forgot them. It simply means now that it's time for reckoning and judgment. Now, what do you think that means when it says that her sins are piled up to heaven? Does that click off any Old Testament story? Tower of Babel, remember? They said, come, let us build a tower that will what? Reach unto heaven. Now, the idea was they weren't going to build this tower that would go all the way up into the clouds like Jack and the Beanstalk kind of a deal. What they were saying is, let us build a system in which we can make it to heaven, which we can be righteous before God. And then God came down and confused their language. So that's the idea. So it says, basically, you go all the way back to the Tower of Babel where it all originated. Man rebelled against God. Nimrod, his name means rebellion. He's the one who established the Babylon. Verse 6, give back to her as she has given. Pay her back double for what she has done. It's the idea of lex talionis. In the Old Testament, God says, well, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. You pay back someone exactly what they've done someone kills somebody, you kill them in the same way. But here, you're to give her back double. Lex Talionis in the Latin. Double the portion. Payback. The same way uh, with the same method and means by which they went ahead and did what they did. Now, it's going to explain what they did and what they're going to get. Give her back double for what she has done. Mix her cup a portion, a double portion from her own cup. If you remember, the... Uh, in chapter 17, the prostitute sitting there with a cup, and the cup had all the abominations, all the adulteries that the kings of the earth had committed, meaning lying with her, lining themselves up with her, sleeping with her, so to speak, pledging allegiance to her. It says you mix those cups. You mix those cups of sin and judgment, and that's what's going to be poured out. Give her as much torture and grief as the glory and luxury she gave herself in her heart she boasts, I sit as queen, I am not a widow, and I will never mourn. 
Now, that's an arrogant statement of what the people of the day are saying. Paul said it this way in 1 Thessalonians 5. He says, they will all be sitting around saying, peace and safety, peace and safety, and then destruction will come upon them like a flood. What the leadership of the earth is doing at this time, and the government is saying, we're not a widow, we're not weak, we're not needy. We will never mourn, we will never be taken out. Kind of like a high school, college kid. They think they're bulletproof right and that's what they're saying that we are beyond the judgment of god we're fine look at all the stuff we have we put our faith in commerce we put our faith in money we put our faith in our position our power our military go down the list and they sit as a queen they sit in arrogance and in pride in a in a position they think is a position of authority but watch in verse eight therefore in one day how long how long will it take? One day. Further on it says, in one hour, your doom has come. In one hour, such great wealth has been brought to ruin. In one hour, she has been brought down. It says, in one day, her plagues will overtake her. Death, mourning, famine, she will be consumed by fire. You've got five particulars here mentioned in Lex Talionis, being paid back double. Plagues, death, mourning, famine, and fire. That pretty much covers it. It says, She will be consumed by fire, for mighty is the Lord God who judges her. She sits as queen, but guess who's the king? She sits in arrogance, but guess who's going to bring her down low? In one day, it says, verse 9, When the kings of the earth who committed adultery with her and shared in her luxury see the smoke of her burning, they will weep and mourn over her, terrified at her torment, they will stand far off and cry. <clears throat> now, here's when I look at this passage. I say, okay, who is it that's being destroyed? Obviously, from that prophecy we looked at in Zechariah, it's the totality of human government and evil. But you've got kings, rulers, and leaders that are looking at this uh, place that has been destroyed, this place of great wealth and prosperity, and they see the smoke rising and they mourn. When is it? We're not sure. I say it's the end of the tribulation period. Who is it? Not sure. We know what it symbolizes, but specifically, if we were to try to label countries and so forth, we're not sure. But obviously, who's being destroyed here, and we're going to see in the next few verses, is a country that is of great wealth and great prosperity. So you decide for yourself. Watch this. Here's what they cry. Woe, woe, O great city of Babylon, city of power. In one hour your doom has come. Some commentators say it's actually Babylon, the actual place 500 miles east of Jerusalem. Right now the city has been rebuilt. Nebuchadnezzar claims to be, I mean, uh, Saddam Hussein, who claims to be Nebuchadnezzar reincarnated, has rebuilt the city. A lot of people are saying that's, you know, that's the place. That's the physical place. But if you look at it, they're mourning. And what do they mourn over? Look at verse 11. It says, The merchants of the earth will weep and mourn over her because no one buys their cargoes anymore. And then it's going to list 28 items. Starts off with gold, silver, precious stones, those commodities that are always selling high, always valuable. Fine linen, purple, silk, Scarlet, cloth, every sort of citron, wood, articles of every kind made of ivory, costly wood, bronze, iron, marble, 
cargoes of cinnamon, spice, of incense, myrrh, frankincense, of wine, olive oil, fine flour, wheat, cattle, sheep, horses, carriages, and bodies, uh, and bodies and souls of men. Now, here's the thing. And I think that list, it's not exhaustive, of course, but uh, it's symbolic, I think, of, of all the world's wealth. You've got four, you've got basically four lists of seven items. Four is the number of the four corners of the earth, and of course God's number is seven. So you've got a totality of all the world's goods that have been wiped out in one hour. And the people are mourning. Now, why are the people mourning? Are they mourning because some of their friends have died? Because we see a lot of them wiped out. Are they mourning because these plagues are coming down and fire is consuming things and there's death and pestilence all around? Why are they mourning? What's their big beef? Are they mourning because this is the end of all civilization as they know it? God done hit them in their pocketbook. They're mourning because the goody wagon has run out. And that's that. That they've gotten so wrapped up in materialism and worldliness and been so consumed by it that all other things, they're anesthetized against all other things. That's what they're mourning for. No more goodies. And it says, in one hour, your doom has come. Verse 14, they will say, the fruit you long for is gone from you. All your riches and your splendor have vanished never to be recovered. The merchants who sold these things and gained their wealth from her will stand far off, terrified at her torment, and they will weep and mourn and cry out. That's why a lot of people say it could be America, because you've got people far off looking at this most prosperous nation in the world that's ever been, just about, wiped out in one hour, gone. Don't know for certain, though. Let me see. They'll stand there in their torment. They will weep and mourn and cry out. Last part of verse 16. Woe, woe, great city, dressed in fine linen, purple and scarlet, and glittering with gold, precious stones and pearls. And one hour such great wealth has been brought to ruin. Every sea captain, all who travel by ship, the sailors, and all who earn their living from the sea will stand far off. And when they see the smoke of her burning, they will exclaim, Was there ever a city like this great city? And they will throw dust on their heads, and with weeping and mourning, cry out, Woe, woe, O great city! For all who had ships in the sea became rich through her wealth. In one hour she has been brought to ruin. Rejoice over her, O heaven. Rejoice, saints and apostles and prophets. God has judged her for the way she has treated you. So you look at it, verses 1 through 19, you've got judgment. Fallen, fallen is Babylon. Woe, woe, woe. In one day, one hour, she has come to ruin. But then all of a sudden, all of a sudden in verse 20, it changes, doesn't it? It shifts. Now you've got rejoicing. You've got a contrast. You've got people mourning and wailing and crying and woeing. And why are they? Because the materialism, their goody wagon has gone out. But then you've got people who are rejoicing. Who are those who are rejoicing? Those who realize that all and everything that we see on this planet that people hold in high esteem and precious and valuable is going to be gone and then the true things of value and beauty are going to be established. Why do you think Jesus said over and over again, make sure that you work for treasures that are going to be stored up in heaven? Because here's the end of the story. You know, one of the greatest, and I think we went over this last week, in Second John, one of the greatest aspects of our faith 
as Christians is that we are possessors of divine truth. That God has spoken. We have the very words and oracles of God written down for us. That the world is asking questions, and guess what? We've got all the answers. We've got a Genesis that tells us the creation of all things and the origin of all things. We've got a revelation that tells us how it's all going to end. We don't have to worry about men and, and their hypotheses and their great philosophies. We've got the end of the story, and then we've got everything else in between. The journey that's going to bring us there and how to deal with it. We are possessors of divine truth. That's the great thing. We've got the end of the book, the end of the story. And there's great rejoicing. Look. It says, Rejoice over her, O heaven. There's the saints. Rejoice, saints and apostles and prophets, all the people of God. God has judged her for the way that she treated you. That even though evil is ahead, look at the look at the hard time President elect Bush is having trying to get his people in. They are just slam dunking them left, right. Ashcroft, what a stud. But look at him, they're just tearing him down. He's too hard on his stance here. He's too hard on his stance there. It just shows you where this country is, has gone to. And we've acquiesced from the truth. God has judged her for the way she's treated you. We're going to win. God's going to make it right. Then a mighty angel picked up a bowl of the size of a large millstone and threw it into the sea. And said, with such violence, the great city of Babylon will be thrown down, never to be found again. The music of harpists and musicians, flute players and trumpeters will never be heard in you again. No workman of any trade will never be found in you again. The sound of a millstone will never be heard in you again. The light of a lamp will never shine in you again. The voice of the bridegroom and bride will never be heard in you again. What word just sticks out over and over and over? Never, never, never. There's a permanent. Now, a millstone, a lower millstone, was a huge round stone. If you've seen some of the pictures of how they ground, is that the right word? How they ground wheat back in those days? They would have this lower millstone, a big, huge circular stone. And they have a stick in the middle of it. And then they would have another stone kind of shaped like a cone that was connected to that stick and another pole that would come out from it, and they'd either hire or they'd get, and then this circular, this cone-shaped stone would go around that millstone, and they'd throw the wheat, and it would grind it. The upper millstone is the round cone-shaped stone that would go around. In the Old Testament, you see stories of people picking it up and throwing it on somebody's head and crushing them. But the lower millstone, you could never pick it up. It was huge. And the idea here is Babylon is tied to this millstone and thrown into the ocean and is never coming back. The rejoicing is where? It's in heaven. And who is doing the rejoicing? The saints and the prophets and the residents of heaven. But who will never rejoice again? Who will never see a light of a lamp? Who will never have the joys of marriage and families? Who will never enjoy the music of harps and trumpets? The wicked. Now watch this. Here's this last verse. Why is this coming down upon him? One great thing about God is God never pronounces judgment without letting people know why he's doing it. He says, Your merchants were the world's great men, but your magic spell, all the nations, were, by your magic spell, all the nations were led astray. Some of you will have sorcery. The idea here is they bought into the lie. 
Paul says in 2 Thessalonians, they refused to love the truth, instead believed the lie, and so pierced themselves. Sorcery. The earth and the world has its spell on people. That you think, well, I'm wealthy, I'm doing okay here. According to society, I'm a very successful man. We judge administrations, presidential administrations, by how well the economy did while they were in office. And what happens here, what he's saying, is these people have been caught in the spell. They felt, well, I'd rather have, like that list in verse 11 and following, my gold, silver, precious jewels, scarlet, linen, cinnamon, and so forth. If I've got those things, I'm okay. It's a deception, and it's a spell that the earth puts on you. It's sorcery. The idea is a, uh, who was it, in the Nordia Chronicles, C.S. Lewis? what he depicted the uh, world as, a witch playing a man mandolin and keeping the world in her spell. Verse 24, In her was found the blood of prophets and of the saints and of all who have been killed on the earth. Meaning all those people who were martyred for their faith. John Huss, who was asked to come down to Bohemia to give his testimony, said, No, I won't come. Unless you promise, you won't kill me. They said, we promise. They said, he said, you promise you won't kill me. We give you our word. He says, you give me your word. Yes. So he went down and he gave his testimony of salvation by grace through faith, Jesus Christ alone. They took him and they hung him and killed him. And before they did, he said, I thought you said you'd give me your word. And they said, well, our word is no good. He, no, they said, we will not make good on our word to a heretic. And they killed him. Or Ignatius, who was thrown to the lion. Or John Ridley and Mortimer before they were burned at the stake uh, picked up one of the logs and kissed it and said for tonight we will sup with the Lord or the 12,000 Christians that were killed in the massacre at St. Bartholomew's in France or uh, James one of the apostles who was run through by the sword Peter who was crucified upside down Paul who was beheaded all these saints that John, who was the last apostle, would be thinking about. That is why all these things are coming down. They refuse to love the truth in God's people and so believe the lie and say, peace and safety, we're okay. Now, I don't have any time, but I wish I did. But I'd show you why and how we're to apply this text to us. Now, if you go back in the Old Testament, Jehu who was commanded to go and do away with evil underneath the rulership of King Ahab, just went out and was a madman and just started killing everything he could find that was in the house of Ahab. And on his way of doing away with evil, he met a man named Joannadab, who was the father of the Rechabites. Joannadab went up in his chariot with him and he said, Jehu, come see my zeal for the Lord. Now, here's, it's a funny scene because he's just slaughtered a bunch of Ahab's descendants and he's going off to get a few more. He's going out to kill a bunch of Baal priests. He's probably got blood all over his chariot and on himself. And uh, you could recognize Jehu. The New York cabbies were called Jehus because Jehu would, would ride like a madman. They would look out from the fortress and they'd see a big dust and cloud. And they'd say, well, who is it? Up oh, must be Jehu. He drives like a madman. He was just like fury. And so here comes Jehu, comes upon this man named Jonadab, 
And Jehu says, come see my zeal for the Lord. Are you with me or against me? What are you going to say to this guy? Uh, no, I think I'm going to go over here. No, he jumped up and he went and saw zeal for the Lord. He killed all these priests. They broke down the altars and the stones of Baal, and they used them as a latrine. And what Joannadab did was saw what God thinks about the worldly system and evil. And what he did was he went back home to his sons, and he developed the tribe or the people of the Rechabites. And these people wouldn't have anything to do with modern cities or wealth. They lived in tents. They wouldn't drink wine. The idea of this text, because basically he saw, he saw Joannadab had saw, or he had seen what God will eventually do with all the worldly and earthly things that are evil. And he said to his boys, he says, we're not going to be a part of that. As for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. You know, I go down uh, on the weekends and disciple these, these men. There's about eight of them. Just about every one of them are millionaires. And uh, they're all real good friends of mine, and I love working with them because they are, and I told them this this weekend. I said, you know, I love you guys. You're my friends, and I come down here because I love the fellowship. But I told them, I said, there's another reason I come down here. I said, because each and every one of you have been put in a great realm of influence that you're around a great many of wealthy people, which are the, some of the hardest people to reach because, you know, they feel like they've, they've got everything. They don't need anything. They certainly don't need God or salvation. And I say one of the greatest things for me is to come down and pour my life into you and to mentor you because I know you're going to go out and take what you learn and try to make an impact in that realm or in that circle that God has put you in. It's a very high-profile pro, high circle with a, a lot of breadth, a lot of people. And I said one of the greatest and encouraging things to me is I look at you men and you're all millionaires. You're all very wealthy, but yet you are unaffected by materialism and worldliness. That every one of them could give it all up tomorrow. And in their business dealings with these people, they hold firm to the word of God. They let their testimony ring out. And there's many opportunities for them to make money dishonestly, but they will not do it. Their word is their bond, and they are walking light and living testimony. Because they have an understanding of Lex Telionis. They have an understanding of Revelation chapter 18, where it's all going to end up. All the gold, the silver, the fine linens, and all the materialistic things that men put all their faith and trust in will eventually be gone. And the only rejoicing that you will hear is where? from heaven above, from the saints, the prophets, and those who I'm looking at. Aren't you glad? Next week, we'll look at 19, the establishment of the kingdom. What I'm going to do with you next week is I'm going to give you a timeline. I'm going to give you all the events that have happened up to this time, and I'm going to put them in chronological order for you so you can kind of look at it because it gets kind of confusing from about 19 on. You've got the great white throne judgment, the thousand-year millennial period, the eternal... Uh, heavens and earth, the judgment of Satan, the Antichrist, the political leader. It'll have the rapture on there, so you can kind of see where it all goes chronologically. All right? Let me pray for us. <clears throat> Lord, again, we're so thankful that you have not left us here without a word. We see that throughout history. Even in the captivity of your people, you've had Jeremiah and Jerusalem, Ezekiel and Daniel in Babylon. A time of captivity disobedience. You never leave your people without a word. In a time that we live, in a country that has turned its back on you, you've not left us without a word. We have your Bible. It tells us the future 
tells us where we've come from and how we're going to get to the where, where you're going to bring us. And I pray that we become these lights that the Bible so commands us to be and salt to cause people to thirst for righteousness and hunger for it. That you will give us opportunities in our realms that you have put us in and our places of influence to be those lights. Open the hearts of those whom we love. Lord, let them see the end of what will happen to all things that people here hold precious materialistically. That there is only one true treasure. It's Jesus Christ and the kingdom that he will establish. And there's only one way into that kingdom. Through the belief and the atoning work, the final work of Jesus Christ on the cross for the forgiveness of our sins. Lord, we pray that you'll open their hearts. Use us. Use whatever means it takes. But bring them to faith. We'll ask it for Christ's name. Amen.